0: In 1970, in Bakersfield, California, a little boy was born, and he had a very difficult relationship with his dad, and so he would escape into music. And it turned out he was a very talented musician. His name was Brian Welch, and that name may not ring a bell, but perhaps if you see his picture, you may recognize him. He went on to form in the 1990s one of the most successful metal bands in the history of music. And Brian was legendary for living the rock-style lifestyle, the rock star lifestyle. I mean, he was legendary in the amount of drugs he can consume. He was legendary in his partying. He was legendary in just diving into the pleasures that the rock star gets, the, the group he's seen, whatever it was, he indulged. But in the early 2000s, his life began to spiral out of control. And ultimately, in 2005, he was depressed, strung out on drugs, and seriously uh, considering committing suicide. He went on a spiritual journey, and in 2005, Brian Welch gave his life to Jesus. And I, someday I will show you his testimony on I Am Second. It's an amazing testimony of God. But whenever I think about prodigals and, and just rebels like Brian Welch, and to a lesser extent, me, who had kind of the same trajectory, much less uh, <laughs> dramatic than him, but, but had the same kind of trajectory in life, I'm always amazed at the wonder of God. And his grace and the wonder of Jesus, just like we sang. You see, there was this horrible spectacle at the cross where Jesus is suffering and people are spitting on him and mocking him. And it it breaks my heart to think that Brian Welch and I and others have metaphorically, through our rebellion and our sin, spit on Jesus. Jesus. But that's all changed, and I'm now a Christian, and, and I've shared my journey with a lot of people. And, and it's not uncommon for someone to say to me, a non-believer that I'm talking to, it's like, Al, really? After all you did, after all the rebellion, you mean to tell me all you got to do is say, oh, I believe in Jesus, and then everything is forgiven, and you get to be with God? You don't have to do anything And folks, that's a legitimate question. I understand why they ask that. And I hope to address that question and maybe a few others as we continue in our series pursuit. Let me start with a word of prayer. Father, your word says that unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. Father... You're the builder. We need you here, Father. Please. You're the only one that can do this. And, and, Father, so would you come? And with people who are doubting, would would you build faith? With people who are feeling discouraged, Father, would you build hope? And in relationships that are struggling and at, at odds, would you build intimacy and connection in those relationships? And, and Father, would you build a thousand other things that I can't even imagine here today by the power of your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as Heather said, it's our third week in the series Pursuit, the Steadfast Love of God. And what we've been doing is focusing exclusively on Luke chapter 15 because there's three parables in Luke. And it's the lost sheep, and Adam taught about that, the lost coin, and Stephen taught about that. And today I'm talking about the lost son. Now that's what the my Bible that's a heading in my Bible, but I have a little little secret for you all. When you open your Bible and those chapter numbers and those verse numbers, when Doctor Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, he didn't put those in there. Your Bible publisher did that just to make it easier for us to study the word and understand it. And so that heading in my Bible it says the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Luke didn't put those there. Jesus did not name this parable. He didn't call it, oh, I'm going to tell you the parable of the prodigal son. So they, in my opinion, did the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son just for consistency. I'm going to call this the parable of the two sons. Since Jesus didn't name it, I can do that. And because it really focuses on the two sons, there are two sons involved in this parable. And of course, it's most famously known as the parable of the prodigal son. But you know what? I'm only going to focus on the sons today. And there is a father involved. And what that means is the rest of the parable is going to be next week at Easter. And so I'm going to try to leave this a little bit of a cliffhanger. So I want you to think of next week as maybe the season finale. You know, nobody wants to miss a season finale like The Walking Dead or any of those things, right? I mean, all the good stuff happens in the season finale. So I'm going to end with the sons, but you need to come back next week. Bring all your friends for the season finale of the prodigal son, okay? You going to be here? All right. But let's get started with this parable. And, And you see, when Jesus told parables, what he was trying to do was just communicate two, maybe three truths about the kingdom of God and about the character of God. That was the purpose of the parable. It wasn't to tell, you know, some perfect story that you can extrapolate millions of of data points from. It was to communicate two or three truths of the kingdom of God and the character of God. So my goal today, I always like to try to tell you what my goal is in my messages. My goal today is that we will uncover together two or three truths about the kingdom of God or about the character of God. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to go uh, look at the younger son in verses 11 through 20. Jesus continued, there is a man who had two sons, See, parable of two sons. The younger one had said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The word of God. Now, in order to fully understand the power of this parable, you have to understand the honor culture that was in existence in the time of Jesus. You see, it's, hard, it's very difficult for us to understand honor culture because we're not in an honor culture. We are in a success culture. An honor culture is just as it sounds, the highest value, the, the greatest esteem is given to someone with honor. So you could be very poor in an honor culture, but if you are this tremendously honorable person, and and you have great respect of the community, you are esteemed. You are at the top of the ladder. And if you are dishonorable, you are not. And so in our culture, it's all about success. So I remember barely in the 50s, a man who came along and was tremendously successful and his name was Hugh Hefner and he started a magazine called Playboy and essentially what he did was he took pornography and introduced it into mainstream culture and got fabulously wealthy in an honor culture he would have been at the bottom of the heap he would have been looked down on he would have been despised Because it was so dishonorable, even in that day, to have done that. But in our culture, because he was incredibly successful, by most people he was esteemed and looked up to. And so you see the difference between an honor and a success culture. It's hard for us to grasp an honor culture because we've lived our whole lives in this success culture. And if somebody's a little dishonorable, eh, that's sort of overlooked. Not in this culture in this day. And so when Jesus is talking... To the Pharisees, remember, we looked at the other two parables. His audience are the Pharisees, the super religious, hardcore, judgmental guys, and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the thieves. So that's his audience. And they all have been totally immersed in the honor culture. And so he begins this parable with an unthinkable thing. A total dishonor of the father. And so it was incredibly important in this day and age for personal honor, but also for family honor. You, your whole future in life dealt with whether you had honor and whether your family had honor. And so he begins with the most dishonorable thing he can think of. The young son comes to his dad and wants his inheritance. What he's really saying, folks, is basically, you know, dad, I was hoping you'd die before now, but since you didn't, Give me my inheritance now. I've always wanted my inheritance. I don't really want a relationship with you. I want your stuff. And that is such a personal insult that that crowd would have gasped. They, they could not have comprehended this amount of dishonor. But then he compounds it by going away. And so now everybody knows what's happened because the son has taken a third of the estate. See, back in this day and age, the older son got two-thirds of the estate. The younger son got one-third. They didn't have cash in the bank. They would have had had to liquidate or send him off with sheep and other, you know, animals. And so now the whole community knows. And I can imagine they were just shocked, everyone there hearing this parable, because they would have understood that this father really would have only had two choices, to kill his son or to disown him. Now, if you want to have some concept of the honor culture, I I got it recently. I read a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi, a great book about an Islamic man in, in college who seeks after Allah, wants to be more committed to his faith, and ends up becoming a follower of Christ. And what he says in there, he discusses this our culture. When he was in college and he was looking at questions of his faith and seeking Allah, he said, I couldn't even tell my father because it would have been so dishonorable. It would have been such an insult to my dad for him to know that I was looking at questions of faith because what it would have communicated to him is, Dad, I don't believe you. I'm not sure you're telling me the truth about the most important issue in the world, my faith. He said he had to hide it from his family that he was in, even looking at his faith because it would have been so, such an insult, and his father, he felt, would have had to disown him. And that is the honor culture, and you get some idea reading that book about even a modern-day Muslim. And, and it turns out that in some Muslim countries, if someone converts to Christianity, the father is duty-bound to go and kill his child, and that has happened in many Muslim countries. So perhaps that gives you an idea of the seriousness of this honor culture. And so the young son goes off, and then Jesus piles it on, doesn't he? He says, and not only that, he's talking to a bunch of Jews. He said, after he spiraled out of control, he he ended up working for a guy and slopping pigs. This would have been the most disgusting thought to a Jew. The pig was the most unclean animal. This would have been the most humiliating thing any Jew could do, was to get down and and spend time and clean and feed pigs. So now Jesus has really piled it on. But, but I want to step back a moment now and just look at the younger son, what's going on in his life. As we know from the story, and we, we've all heard it before, his life is spiraling out of control, isn't it? He's losing everything. He's ending up working in this pig farm. And what I want to suggest to you is that this isn't something unique to this prodigal son. What I want to suggest is this happens to everyone who pursues the gods of this world and rejects the one true God. And where do I get that principle? I get it from Psalm 16.4, and I think we have it here today. This is one of the truest things I know, sadly, because I experienced it. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. And so every culture offers gods. Most of the time, the gods are the same throughout the centuries. The gods of money, materialism, success, pleasure, and all its various forms. And you think that those are going to satisfy, and that's what I did. I thought they were going to satisfy, and I ran after those things. But inevitably, without question, everyone who does, their sorrows increase because this is what the Word of God says. Think of it this way. You know, when when Brian Welch or me, when we are pursuing the gods of this world and, and money and pleasure and all those things, God didn't say, you know, that Al, he's so arrogant. I'm just going to slam him. I'm going to make him unhappy. That isn't what happened. I don't believe. It's more that this is woven into the fabric, the very fabric of the universe. Think of gravity as an example, okay? Let's say someday I get so arrogant and full of myself, I go to the top of You know, some 20 story building. I said, you know what? I'm Al Hasser, I'm gonna fly. You know, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go out there and do my thing and fly. And I jump off that 20 story building. Now God isn't there watching and saying, you know what? I'm angry at Al for being so arrogant. I'm gonna slam him to the pavement. But what happens? I slam to the pavement. Because gravity is just a reality, a truth. It is woven into the fabric of this universe, and so is this principle. And that's why I don't have to wonder if the latest Hollywood person who's in the news for sleeping around and drugs and money and possessions, I don't have to wonder. If Paris Hilton or Kim Kardashian or Charlie Sheen, if they're happy, of course they're going to say they're happy. If you would to talk to me when I was 37 years old living this way, I would have said, yeah, man, I've got it all. I've got everything, money, material possession, pleasure, women, every, I've got it all. Of course I'm happy. But I wasn't. I was spiraling out of control. The sorrows of a man will increase who runs after other gods. You cannot avoid that. But there's another truth that was going on in the prodigal son. The Scripture says, he came to his senses. For me, it was like, there was nights, many nights, I would just be crying and saying, there's got to be more than this. There has to be more than this. Why did I say that? Ecclesiastes 3.11, and we have that here see Ecclesiastes is an amazing book you need to read it sometime it's written by Solomon and Solomon was the ultimate hedonist Solomon was the richest man in the world he was the son of David he was the king of Israel and you can read it in the scripture he had hundreds of wives hundreds of mistresses so there's nobody who's indulged in that pleasure more than Solomon he was the richest man in the world nobody had more money than Solomon he tried all the wines he tried all the intoxicants nobody did that more than Solomon anything you can imagine solomon indulged in more than anybody else there's nothing new under the sun folks and at the end of the book of ecclesiastes where he's talking about all these things he tried he says in the end is this the only thing that has meaning is to love god to, to be with god to stay connected to god but ecclesiastes 3:11 says this remarkable thing god has set eternity in our hearts This is such a gracious thing that God has done. He has set in my heart, in your heart, eternal connection with the God of the universe. And so, Brian Welch, Al Hassler, the prodigal son, this gracious thing that God set in our heart went off like a rocket. And those nights when I was crying out, there has to be something more, was because of this gracious thing that God set in my heart. And so... You've all heard it. I went on a spiritual journey and made my faith commitment. And that's what happened to Brian Welch. And so the prodigal son turns around. He says, I know there's something more. And it's about connection with my father. And so he turns around and goes home. And I'm telling you, when Jesus was telling this part of the story, I have no doubt that everybody's on the edge of their seat. They're honor culture people. They know what should be happening. They're sitting there wondering, is he going to kill his son? What's he going to do? And then the unthinkable moment, the unimaginable unimaginable moment, the father runs to the prodigal son and hugs this filthy son who's been with the pigs. And I can almost imagine the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the thieves jumping out of their seat and cheering. So there's hope. Jesus is saying that no matter how much you've sinned, you can still come home. There's hope for us. And I can imagine the Pharisees just angry, muttering. And I think Jesus knew that too. Because you see, If this was just about grace to those who sin, there would only need to be one son in this parable. But there are two sons. And what is going on with the second son? He hears the commotion at the house, and this is what the Bible says in Luke 15, beginning at verse 28. He understands there's a party going on. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, excuse me, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice that, he can't even say my brother. Why can't he say, This is my brother? What's he done? He's disowned him. He is part of the Arna culture. He's already disowned this kid. That's it. This isn't my brother anymore. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because the brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I can imagine at that moment when Jesus comes to this part of the parable, him turning to the Pharisees and saying, please, come in. Everything I have is yours. Jesus loved the older brother. He loved the Pharisees just as much as the younger son. And what's striking to me is the parable ends right there. And we never know how the older brother responds. You see, what the Pharisees didn't grasp was the truth about how one gets right with God. They thought you could get right through their good works. They thought they could earn their way to God. They thought they were better than the younger son. But there's another dynamic here going on, by the way, that we can't overlook, Like I said, the the older son gets two-thirds and the younger son gets one third. Now, this was all in property and and livestock and other things, but let's assume it was a it was a three million dollar inheritance, okay? Let's say it was cash. So the younger son leaves, he gets his third, right? That's what his father gave him. He blows all that, right? What's left? Two million dollars. Well, guess what? As long as the younger son is disowned, who gets all the two million dollars? The older son. Now the younger son comes again. The father invites him back into the family. What's going to happen to that $2 million? The younger son's going to get his portion. So he has just lost, the older son has just lost a big chunk of his inheritance. And he's not a happy camper, is he? He didn't understand the truth that everything. When you are, belong to God, you have access to everything in the universe. And he also didn't understand that his righteousness was insufficient to get him right with God. And this is set out very, very clearly in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And I love these verses because this is the essence of the gospel. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, Not not of your good works, not of anything you did, not of yourselves, but as the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. There's going to be no boasting. There's going to be no Pharisees in heaven saying, I follow the law better than any of you. We all have fallen short short uh, of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, each and every one of us. And that's what the parable of the prodigal son is about. It's about the gospel. You know, and, and Jesus taught in parables because he's trying to connect with people's hearts. You see, all of this stuff—yes, it's processed through our mind. That's important. I'm not saying set your mind apart, but ultimately, you grasp it one way or the other with your heart. And, and as I wrestle with this parable, I'm thinking, how how does that happen today? We're so used to logical principles. If Jesus wanted to use logical principles. He just would have said, "Okay, this is the principle." Your works can't get you there, and I'll forgive all your sins no matter how bad. Now go on your way. He didn't do that. He told a parable. And so as I wrestled with this, I thought of a young man who came out of uh, east-central L.A., the, the deepest part of the hood. And he, just by a miracle, instead of going down the gang bang trail, he went in and became a Christian and now has used, been using his gifts of poetry and the spoken word, and his name is Propaganda, and he did a presentation of the Prodigal Son, actually the two sons, and you'll see him. He points one way and the other, and, and one is the Prodigal Son. It's you know he's a rebel. He he can't even stand to look at himself in the mirror. He's so filthy, and the other son is propping up good works and all these other things. So he, we have a video of him doing a three-minute presentation on something I just took 20 minutes on, uh, a three minute presentation of the parable of the prodigal son or the two sons. So let's watch propaganda.
1: See, we're really not so different. We all got issues, some just more easily identified. See this one, this one keeps tally marks. And that one, he done lost count. He the type that loves rubrics. Like, tell me how to do this, practice makes perfect. And that one, and that one questions everything. He don't do too well with authority. Like, let me learn on my own. Experience is the best teacher. Let me learn by my own hands. And this one, this one is good visibly. But that one, that one failed miserably. This one got it covered. That one don't need a covering. And this one got it all figured out. But so does that one. And this one knows he's better than that one. His filth fills his nostrils. You stink of lawlessness, selfishness, rebellion, Arrogance. But that one knows that this one has been brainwashed. A drone that can't think on his own, so prone to conform. You stink of vain repetition, of selfishness, judgment, arrogance. See we all got beliefs. This one, this one loves the mirror. Spends hours there perfecting his reflection, knowing full well it's lying to him. He just knows that his religious cosmetics would cover up his blemishes. Feeding the poor, helping the needy, that's God's airbrush right? But that one, that one hates the mirror, he's embarrassed of his reflection. He just knows that if he blows enough he'll be too high to notice, or even care, or question if it matters, like why should I believe in a system that feeds a man's ego right? See we all got beliefs, we all got issues, they both liars, it's just this one is tired of doing it. And that one thinks he earns it. And that one don't deserve it. But that one agrees. So he believes if I master these 12 steps, perfect this prayer, then I will be okay. And that one agrees that if this one was more like me, we would both be okay. See, we all got beliefs. We both believe in our own means. This one heaps up good deeds. He's involved in social justice. Let me prove it. He has never let a tool click, but he's been so judgmental on souls he's left bruises. As if his filthy rag righteousness makes him any better than that one. Homie, let's say they were both swimming to Hawaii. And this one, this one made it 10 miles. And that one, he made it one. They are both equally dead. See, we all got beliefs. It's just that that one... Believes if I ask for forgiveness. heap up Hail Marys. I'll be worthy of his mercy. We all got beliefs. Problem is we're both wrong. Because at the foot of the cross. The ground is equally level.
0: I, I really recommend. You go listen to that again. A couple of times as I have it. It gets richer and deeper all the time. You see just as propaganda says, just as the Bible says, we have all fallen short. We are all deserving of punishment. We all deserve to be separated from God. We all deserve to be disowned by an honorable and loving God. We all deserve to have our big brother mad at us. And now... We need to reveal one last little mystery. There was one other character present in that story. You see, he was talking about the brothers, but there was one other character, the one telling the story. Because Romans says that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is willing to let us share in his inheritance. And we have Romans eight fifteen through 17. And just, just soak on the words of Romans 8. Soak on these words. For you have not received a spirit that makes you a slave against a fear, but you have received the Spirit of Sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies that, with our Spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, there are also heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His suffering, in order that we may share in His glory. Jesus invites you, He died for you. When you turn around and come home, he isn't there saying, I don't know them. That's not my brother. He's saying, Father, forgive them for they have, don't know what they've done and I've paid the price. Let them in and be co-heirs of the universe with me. So my prayer for all of us, all of us prodigals, is that we will turn around and run into the loving arms of our loving Father and our perfect Big Brother Jesus, let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word. Father, i I can't thank you. Words just uh, fail me when I try to thank you for for loving me even when I was rebelling and even when I was a prodigal son. And Jesus, Jesus, the big brother I, I never had on this earth and, and the big brother that I, I love so much, I'm sorry, Jesus, for, for what I did. But I'm so grateful that you've invited me back into the family, that you paid the price so that I could come back into the family. And my prayer, Father, My prayer, Jesus, is if anyone here hasn't turned and and come back into the family, they will do that today and get to know the loving Father and the big brother. And it's in my big brother's name I pray. Amen.